This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Well, uh, this is a touchy one, because if you talk to other members of my group now, if you were like able to pull them in an interview, then they would all complain what a shitty collaborator I was. And at the time, I would have gone, that's ridiculous. But in hindsight, I could understand, yeah, they're right, I was. I'm your host, KC Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Most people know Danny Elfman as the film composer behind the iconic scores from Batman, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is my personal favorite, and over 100 other TV and film projects. And if you were born in a certain decade, you may also know Danny as the frontman of Oingo Boingo. During his Oingo Boingo days in the 80s, Danny actually released a solo album, and fast forward 37 years later, he's finally following that up with his latest solo effort, Big Mess. And after listening to the album and watching the music videos, I can't think of a better title for this album, and I mean that in the best way possible, of course. Big Mess is dark, it's chaotic, it's raw, and it's the perfect example of the kind of creativity that comes when you learn to let go, and also, in Danny's case in particular, when you learn how to collaborate. In this episode, Danny explains how he's working on being a less shitty collaborator, his words, not mine, why making Big Mess was the therapy he didn't realize he needed, and he revisits some of his most well-loved scores of his career. Well, Danny, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This is a... Oh, yeah. This is a moment. It's like a talking to one of my childhood heroes here and we'll get into that in a minute no seriously <laughs> so. well thank you i appreciate that no it's it's uh, my pleasure entirely and so I, I i always whenever i have my guests on uh this show i always like to really start from the beginning and ask you know ask them like what what was that initial spark that set them on their path so for you when would you say music really took a hold of you in a meaningful way, in a way where you thought, this is something I can and want to do? I really consider the fact that I got into music a complete series of lucky coincidences. The first coincidence was that I came out of elementary and middle school uh, growing up in one neighborhood in Los Angeles. And uh, in between junior and high school, my parents moved to West LA. And I was starting a new school where I knew nobody. I had no friends. So I was making friends from scratch. And I just stumbled into a pretty arty group. Even in hindsight, when I look at this group, I go, wow, they were very musical and very artistic. And it reset my focus. Sometimes I hate to say it, it's just that simple. You're hanging around with people who open up a kind of a door that you'd never even considered going through. Mm. And so of my group of friends, by the time I got to my second year, one was a trumpet player, jazz trumpet player, who already was starting to work as an avant-garde composer <laughs> and was doing these crazy compositions. And I was like, wow. And another was the, the drummer who, of course, you know, the wild one that <laughs> nobody expected to live to 30. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but already, even as the crazy drummer, he was into contemporary percussion composition. And he turned me on to Steve Reich and mm -hmm. all these contemporary percussion composers. And it was like, wow, and jazz. And then my, my composer friend turned me on to Stravinsky. So between Stravinsky, 
and Miles Davis, it was like a 180 turnaround because my life to that point was really the Beatles, you know, Jimi Hendrix, the Stones, what kids growing out of the 60s, we all grew up on the same thing. I'm sitting there late at night in my friend's garage listening to jazz. And suddenly it's like, I'm listening to Ornette Coleman and Miles Davis and John Coltrane. And it's like, I just threw out my entire record collection. It was like my life started from scratch. Wow. And then the second series of coincidences, my brother meets, he's a conga drum player, mm -hmm. and he meets these French musical theatrical troupe in Toronto. They see him playing the drums and they say, come out to Paris and play with us. So my brother's now living in Paris and working with a crazy troupe. I'm beginning a, a year of world travel that I'd been planning my entire senior year in high school was just dedicated to planning this trip. And um, in the way to Africa, I stopped in Paris. And I decided to pick up a violin my senior year of high school just to learn something while I traveled, learn jazz violin, I was obsessed with the jazz violinist named Stefan Grappelli, who played with uh, Django Reinhardt in Paris in the 30s. And he heard me playing and he hired me. <laughs> and so I'm 18 years old. I've only been playing five months, never taken a lesson. And I'm touring with this French musical theatrical troupe because for whatever reason, they say, you're good enough for us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was real crazy guerrilla theater. It's not like you had to be a classical musician to be part of this troupe. But now I'm going, wow, wait a minute. I'm actually playing in front of people and I'm digging it. And uh, I kind of started a few little compositions. And so it's, you know, my brain in a period of a year and a half was being completely re-imprinted. Right. And I think that that's one, one of the many things I find fascinating about your career, because I mean, when it comes to music, like you, you were largely self-taught, if not completely self-taught. Oh, yeah, I, I'm completely self-taught. Right. We were infatuated with early jazz mm -hmm. in those days. And uh, so it's kind of half the stuff we did, I was writing kind of these crazy compositions, and half was really authentic arrangements from uh, Duke Ellington, mm -hmm. Cab Calloway, and Django Reinhardt. And my earliest musical training was transcribing Duke Ellington. Right. And fortunately, Duke Ellington was an amazing composer and arranger. I mean, a lot of people don't quite understand. They think, oh, he was a band leader and, you know, did these like really cool things. But if you listen to his arrangements, he was an absolutely original composer, like a major to me and a major American voice, a major American composer. How would you say having that foundation of transcribing, you know, Duke Ellington's work and, and being self-taught, how do you think that that foundation sets you up for the rest of your career? Like, how does that, how does just kind of being immersed in, you know, the, the sort of innovation that Duke was doing and knowing that you were learning outside of the traditional institutions of music education? I mean, how did all that sort of coalesce into, into your career going forward? Well, I think what it did is it just threw all this not traditional random data into the mishmash computer, which was my forming chaotic brain. <laughs> and so rather than growing up on the sensible classical compositions, 
you know, which never really appealed to me. I, I still, I listen to Beethoven and Bach and Schumann and, and I, I, res I respect it. It's, it's great, but it, it doesn't connect with me. It's like, for me, the music that connects to me is classical music. It's coming from the 20th century when chaotic harmonies and rhythms all started to mix up and you could do anything. There were no rules anymore. And then combine that with the freedom of jazz and um, again, the, the lack of rules that need to be followed, and then throw that in with all the percussion stuff that I was listening to, and cross rhythms and uh, polyrhythms. It just kind of created a, for better or worse, the, the foundations of where I, how I developed, mm -hmm. you know, I just developed with a lot of kind of strange influences, but I don't know how any one thing hit me in what way. All, all I knew is that the first time I heard percussionists playing at, at a funeral in Africa, in West Africa, I was transfixed. Mm. I was really moved. And the first time I heard Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, it just changed my life. Because first off, I'm hearing a sound that I've never heard before, but I'm hearing rhythm done in a way. And again, it's kind of this crossing of rhythms, where the one thing is getting pulled into another. And I began to see how Things that have a rhythmic base really appeal to me. I feel like, in addition to you know, as we as we talked about this 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 base that you formed of you know working with Ellington's music and you kind of you know being self taught. I mean, I feel like a big part of your early career was this was based on mass collaboration. I mean, the Mystic Nights of Oingo Boingo started as like a music theater troupe, and then it eventually turned into Oingo Boingo the band, which had quite a few members, and so. I mean, how would you say collaboration at that level, having like all of these other voices and all these other, you know, players in the room and even, you know, going back to you being your initial group in, in high school kind of coming up. I mean, like, how would you say that sort of collaboration, being able to bounce ideas off of people and just kind of work in, a, in big groups? How did that form you as a creative? Well, uh, this is a touchy one, mm. because if you talk to other members of my group now, if you were like able to pull them in an interview, then they would all complain what a shitty collaborator I was. <laughs> and at the time, I would have gone, that's ridiculous. But in hindsight, I could understand, yeah, they're right. What made you I a was. shitty collaborator? Because I was hearing the voices in my own head, and I was absolutely obsessed with getting them out of my head. Mm. And I wasn't necessarily kind and open to other ideas as much as now with the perspective of age and you know, that tiny bit of wisdom that comes to you, you only get a smidgen, by the way, I, I got to warn you right now, you know, if you think you're going to get all this wisdom when you're old, forget it. You, you, you know, you're going to be expecting miles and you're going to get inches. But I figured, but thanks for the uh, heads up. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but th that being said, I, I, it is the one thing I feel guilty about looking back is that I was pretty single-mindedly obsessed. From my own perspective, it's like I constantly had these demons that were banging at me trying to get out. And my only way to deal with it was just like, no, 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 this is what we have to do this, this way. We have to do this, this way. And in hindsight, I wish Later in life, I longed for a more collaborative kind of arrangement because I saw how other bands worked, you know, where it's like, wow, you know, it's like 
look, they're all sharing ideas and bringing things to the table. And how cool would that be? So when would you say that fell into place for you? Because I mean, I, I, I just find it such an interesting, real and honest of you to say like, yeah, I was not the best in hindsight, you know, I, I could have, I could have listened more. But then I also understand, you know, young Danny back then just wanting to get your ideas out. Because as you said, like, you know, they were just, you're almost collaborating just with the voices in your own head. And I get that well, as yeah. a creative, like you just really want to, you see it so clearly in your head and that's how you want it. So I guess like, when would you say that shift happened of you kind of having this realization and then, and, and, and learning from that in a way? Well, first off, becoming a film composer is automatically becoming a collaborator. Exactly. And so I had not been forced to collaborate really with anybody on much of anything until film, you know, when suddenly it's like part of my job is figuring out how to work with a director because it's their show. It's not mine. And what I learned right away is that it doesn't matter how much I like some musical idea. If the director doesn't hear it, doesn't feel it, it isn't going to happen. And there is a point which I also part of my education in film composition is that you can only push your point of view so far and then it starts to work against you. You know, there's a point where you have to, as much as you love a musical idea, you have to go, you know what, this just isn't flying. I'm just going to walk away and start from scratch. Mm. Is there an example and of you that? Just have to... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've done like 105 or 110 films. Yeah. <laughs> I would say a hundred of those <laughs> involved coming up with a number of musical ideas and not every musical idea flies. You know, sometimes it's just lucky. The first idea just goes and the director is like, yeah, I'm on board with this. <laughs> but often it's like, well, kind of, well, okay, here, let me, let me work on this some more and I'll take it and I'll retool it and I'll retool it and try to like expand on it and bring them back in and like find out like, what part of this are they connecting to? Then I find that part and then elaborate on that. And I mean, like, really, one of the most extreme examples would be I did a movie called Milk with the director Gus Van Zandt. Mm -hmm. And his initial concept was Harvey Milk listened to opera. So let's make the score operatic as if it's opera. And I said, Okay, cool concept. And I went off on my own for about two weeks. And I wrote all this music that was opera inspired. I was listening to opera, and I'm writing the score. And and then I wrote a couple other ideas on my own that were not opera. But then Gus comes in and we're playing and playing and playing. And I can tell from his expression, just, and, and I'm feeling myself too, it's just not quite working. It's like an idea, but it's not quite working. Then there's this one little thing and Gus says, you know, the, what is that little thing you played there in the middle? I said, oh yeah, this is improvisation. Can you put that against this scene? And I do, and he goes, can you put it against this scene? And then he goes, I think that's the score. Hmm. And so the whole, the, the two weeks of work I've been doing was 90% just washed away in a second. And this little, almost kind of a jazzy improv that I just happened to, I, I've also learned whenever I do some kind of weird improv, don't, don't discount it. You never know. And this is a perfect example. What I thought was just like some arbitrary piece that might work for something or another somewhere in the movie ended up developing into the main theme of the film. Mm. That's such and, a good point. Um, and that's a collaboration. Right. That's, uh, you know, I, have, I was working through Gus's instincts on a musical journey that simply 
didn't pay off. Mm -hmm. And yet this little, what seemed like an arbitrary piece ended up developing into and blossoming into the whole center of the score. So it, it is very collaborative. Even still, that being said, the collaboration is musically me with the vision of the director. I'm not collaborating musically with anybody. So it's a artistic collaboration, mm -hmm. but it's still not a musical collaboration, right. which I still think I'm very poor at. <laughs> and I'm trying to get better at. Yeah. I've done a couple of collaborations for this new album mm -hmm. that I've just finished, which is a first time for me. Mm. You know, where another artist came in and uh, did vocals, and I took the vocals and I redid my vocals, and then set, you know, and kind of put their tracks with my tracks, and created this kind of new collaborative version of my song that I'd already done. Wow. And it's like, wow, at this point in my life, to be doing my first musical collaboration like this is it's crazy, but it's fun. That's amazing. That's so cool. And I, I. I absolutely want to talk about, you know, big mess, but I also, I cannot have you on this podcast without talking about one of my favorite films of all time, honestly, Nightmare Before Christmas, because okay. that came out. I have to tell you, I remember my when it came into theaters, I was like, I have to see this movie. And my mom was like, I'm not taking you. It's too scary. And I was like, but th the rating says I can see it. <laughs> like, what are we talking about? And so when it came well, out. You, you nailed the, the problem when it came out. It was just that. But everybody thought it was too scary for it kids. It was so my sensibility because I was that kid. Like, I was like, this is this looks like a movie that just like someone dug into my brain and was like, oh, OK, this is like we're going to put this on like the big screen. And so when it came out on VHS, I took all my allowance money. I like dumped it out. On the counter at walmart being like i'm gonna buy this and Sweet. i that film and that score just absolutely like you know changed my life and I, i'm i'm so fortunate that actually i know that you've been doing these um live to live to film concerts yeah. and yeah. love the film and i actually had the chance to see it in new york at the uh, new york philharmonic and it was just amazing and so you know i i, I wonder because i know some creatives they don't really like they don't usually revisit their work in a way and so for you i mean what is it like doing this because you've done you've done a bunch at the hollywood bowl you brought it to new york you're doing it again you know um coming up in october so what is it like revisiting your work in this capacity of you know singing and <laughs> singing the tracks and doing everything like what's that like for you it was so weird because it's something you know it meant a lot to me at that moment because you know as a composer you're on a film for anywhere between five weeks and 14 weeks generally Nightmare Before Christmas, I was on for two years. Wow. Um, it was a big chunk of my life. And just what you're saying was the big frustration, you know, like putting all this effort into it and pouring so much of myself into it uh, because I really felt like I was pouring my own sensibility into Jack Skellington's, you know, his personality mm -hmm. because I, I felt like I was experiencing the same thing he was experiencing. Absolutely. So it was coming from me because... At the point when Jack Skellington is trying to, he's disenchanted with Halloween land and trying to find something new. I was desperately trying to get out of Boingo Boingo. Mm. And I didn't know how, because they were all dependent on me. And I didn't want to be in a band anymore. It had nothing to do with Boingo Boingo. I just didn't want to be in a band, period. But I was successful as a film composer. And if I'd have just quit and done that, it would always appear to them that I just jumped ship for something more lucrative and a lot of guilt, you know, yeah. it's that, yeah, I got the guilt thing. And so 
that kept me going for about six years. That's a long time wanting out. Mm -hmm. And so in that period is when I wrote the music for Nightmare Before Christmas. And so I felt Jack's pain <laughs> because, you know, when you're a songwriter, singer in a rock band, it is your little world, your own world. It's your own universe. And you're, you're the king of your universe. It, you're just like Jack in Halloween land. But I really wanted a door take me to something else so you know as tim's telling me the story it's like oh i so get this <laughs> so in long story long because i'm not making it short at all <laughs> when i ended up at the 25 year anniversary of uh, burton music being asked to do this uh series of concerts in england for the albert hall and uh it meant putting together 15 suites mm. at that point and it was a lot of work i worked on it for three months and there was a certain point where my my agent who is the producer says danny uh, would you mind you know if we're for the nightmare suite maybe you'll sing a couple songs and without thinking i said yeah yeah sure fine and uh, now it's six months later and i'm actually putting together 15 orchestral suites and not having any idea how they're going to work or if it's going to work and i go oh shit, nightmare did i say i was gonna i call him up i say did i say i was gonna sing and he goes yeah i go well tell him i can't i'm not gonna sing. i'm not gonna sing. and he goes it's too late they've already advertised and I go, oh, no. <laughs> and cut to me backstage at Albert Hall, first time ever for this show, no dress rehearsals, no taking wow. it on the road. This is the first time ever. And, and I'm singing for the first time in 18 years. <laughs> and I'm like, I had stage fright my whole career. It's another reason why I didn't mind leaving performing mm. at that point, because I never, you know, I, I think I was on stage for 23 years between the Mystic Knights and Ringo Boingo, and I never got over it. And wow. I realized some people never do. Right. And so I'm at that stage door and I'm frozen. And I'm going, I'm not going to be able to go through this door. I'm just going to disappear. And Helena Bonham Carter is sitting behind me. She's on the floor. She's going to do Sally for that show. Mm -hmm. And she's all floppy. She's getting into character, <laughs> you know? So she's like being all kind of like a rag doll floppy on the floor. <laughs> And she goes, Danny, what's the problem? And I'm like, Helena, I don't think I can do this. And she gave me the best advice ever for me. She just said, Danny, what the fuck? <laughs> and I said there, duh. It's like the story of my life has been a series of like, what the fuck? <laughs> and step through the door, whether it's be starting a band, getting into film, you know, get start everything I've done has been that. And I just walked through those doors, not giving a shit and had the one of the best experiences of my life. We're gonna take a quick break here. And when we're back, Danny dives into the big mess he's made with his first solo project in 37 years. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I want to talk about Big Mess, which of course is your first solo album in 37 years. That's a long stretch of time between projects. So what made you want to put out another album? Well, I hadn't intended to do a solo album. Hmm. I think really what this came out of is the pandemic. I did agree and go and do this crazy concert at Coachella that was going to be half rock and roll, where I was reviving a lot of, you know, uh, mo the more socially relevant 
songs from Oingo Boingo. Mm -hmm. I, I was trying to find what songs talked about dystopian culture. And I realized, oh, about half of everything I wrote. So it was kind of easy to choose stuff that seemed easy to make topical. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then half would be film music. And it was going to mix up with these visuals, which I was very excited about the visuals or what got me into wanting to do it. But in the process of doing that concert, I had one new song, mm. uh, which started the year before uh, called Sorry. Mm -hmm. And Sorry was a concept. It wasn't a song. It was an instrumental piece that I'd written to premiere at a festival in Tasmania called Dark Mofo, which is a music arts festival that I really love. And I described it at the time as, I said, I don't know how to call this. I'm calling it chamber punk because it's like That's a rock accurate. band and a chamber orchestra and nine female voices and I'll turn it into a whole thing. And so I wrote this piece. I wasn't singing it at that time. I was only playing guitar. But then when Coachella came along saying, you know what, take that piece and turn it into a song. And when I started opening my mouth to do lyrics, I couldn't believe how much venom was in me. So now I have a guitar in my hands and I'm filled with frustration and venom. And then the pandemic happens and everything cancels. I mean, Coachella canceled just weeks before right. we were going on. And I found myself isolated in my house outside of LA that, um, you know, my wife and son, we just, and dog, we just, you know, packed up the car and drove up there. It's a place I'd go for a weekend or mm -hmm. every, maybe a week, the most I've ever stayed there. And we lived there for a year now. Right. And um, I don't have a studio there. I have a little writing room. And that was interesting because you see me here, I'm in my studio. I have a lot of toys. <laughs> I have a lot of guitars. And um, up there, it's a little room. I have my computer, I could write there. And I have one electric guitar and one handheld microphone. That's it. And I didn't even have a pair of headphones that worked. And I said, you know, uh, maybe I was trying to write a orchestral piece. And then I decided I might just maybe I'll do a couple more pieces that might go along with sorry and, you know, become some kind of, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing, but I, I was angry and frustrated at that time. And I opened the Pandora's box and have, you know, I realized all I need is one mic and one guitar. I don't need mm -hmm. anything else. And then like the big mess, you know, I never expect to see a dollar from any of this. And this was like a year. I, I expected it to be only four, five or six months, but it's really been a year's worth of work because it's a big project, but it doesn't matter it felt good and it was therapeutic for me. And I got a lot off of my chest. Yeah. And I also discovered that I have a new different voice that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. And and that was kind of fun because I didn't know what I was going to sound like. And um, I found I could do certain things now in a way that I couldn't do before. I, I learned that when I was singing the song true and I was going, you know, 35 years ago, if I'd have tried to sing true, I just wouldn't have pulled it off. I, I couldn't allow myself the rawness that I don't care now. So, and I don't try to fix it up. So I, I just have a different attitude and it's kind of freeing. It's like, I record it as a demo. All of my vocals on this album were recorded in my little room mm -hmm. in my demo with my handheld mic. I didn't re-record anything. Hmm. I just have an attitude of, uh, do it where it feels right and don't try to fix it. I always love to ask this question at the end of these interviews, just thinking 
at this point in your career, when you just sort of think back on all that you've done, this this project that you're this new project and everything that you've done in the past, I mean, how have you come to define creativity for yourself? Thank you. That's a good question. For me, it's the ability to keep moving. Creativity for me, it's like you have to live like a shark mm. in the water. It's like you slow down, you die. Period. You know, you stagnate, you can't breathe. And the ability to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. 15 years ago, I did my first classical commissions. Five years ago, I decided I'll take off film work every year for the rest of my creative, like functional days and do classical work. And that's a way to constantly knock myself out of my comfort zone. And that's the key. It's like, once you start getting a comfort zone, yeah, you can do well, you can be very successful, but creatively, you're going to flounder. Yeah. You have to push yourself out of your comfort zone. So I'm constantly looking for something to like bang me right out of my comfort zone. Ah, I love that. And I love this conversation. Danny, thank you, thank you. so much for this. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. My next conversation is with acclaimed stage and film actor Danielle Brooks. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss that episode and all the other amazing episodes we have planned for you. See you soon.